And now the news from Zarahemla, a small town in southern Utah. Samantha Johns wasn't bitter. While her life had been difficult, she knew that life was supposed to be a challenge, and she felt fortunate to have learned about kindness and empathy as an adult, having missed out as a child. She was, however, feeling particularly aimless. In 1996, at age 12, Samantha Galveston then, was living in Kearney, Nebraska when her father disappeared. Her mother tried to tell her that something calamitous must have happened to him, but Samantha knew better. Her father was unsettled. He was a gentle enough man, but impatient when it came to getting what he wanted. He gambled a little, dallied a little with other women, quit one job after another, always citing the ineptitude of the management, drank a little, and finally he was just gone. Samantha understood part of his behavior. Her mother was a schizophrenic. The symptoms seemed to come and go when Samantha was small, but Mom worsened when Samantha was about eight. Dad started taking over most of the household chores, but wasn't very good at many of them, especially the cooking, so Samantha had a baptism of fire in the kitchen. Dad was patient with a lot of it, especially once Mom got diagnosed and started taking her antipsychotics. But Mom wasn't consistent. As much as Dad and Samantha tried to monitor her, Mom would sometimes intentionally skip her dosage. Samantha came to believe that Mom found comfort in the uncertain world of her mind instead of the reality of her home life. After Dad left, she got worse, and with the help of a social worker and her Aunt Patsy, Mom was institutionalized. At age 14, Sam, she liked being called Sam now, went to live with a reluctant and put-upon Aunt Patsy for two and a half years, during which time, solely through her own initiative, not because of any encouragement from her aunt, she got an early high school diploma and started her own business washing windows at storefronts in downtown Terre Haute, Indiana. A month following her 17th birthday, Sam decided it was time to go. She knew the world was dangerous, but she didn't want to be where she was only tolerated. She didn't know if love existed anywhere else, but she thought it was better to go and look than just sit and fester. Besides, her muse was telling her it was the right thing to do. She had worried now and then that she might be showing signs of schizophrenia, there was a slightly higher chance among children of sufferers, but she had decided that the voice she heard was not that. In truth, it wasn't really a voice. It was a sense of rightness that came to her now and again, almost as though someone were standing behind her and squeezing her shoulders and kissing the top of her head. It always sent a chill down her spine. The feeling woke her once when she was ten, she knew that she needed to get up and check on her mother. It was a calm feeling, not a panicked one, but the impression was also urgent. Dad had not come home yet, and Mom had been having a rather loud argument with herself when Sam had gone to bed and put in her earplugs. She now found Mom sprawled across her bed, still dressed, but with a smoldering cigarette in her hand. The ashes had fallen onto some tissue on the floor, the tissues had burned, and now a spot in the carpet was smoldering enough to put out some pretty strong fumes. 
Sam grabbed a water bottle from the dresser and doused the spot in the carpet. She then woke up Mom just enough to get her to move to the couch in the living room, at least until the fumes dissipated. There were other times at school and at work where her muse guided her, protected her, helped her know that her decisions were good ones. Her muse didn't always safeguard her. She certainly made her share of bad decisions, and she suffered hurt as much or more than anyone. But when the inspirations came, Sam had learned to trust them. Sam could easily pass for twenty now, so she stuffed her backpack with clothes, her bra and shoes with some cash, and began hitchhiking west. After many experiences, some eye-opening, some horrific, some that were tender moments of hope, she stopped on the eve of her 18th birthday at Red Canyon Campground. She had been hiking all day, no one seemed to want to give her a ride, was low on funds, and didn't want to spend any money for the camping fee. So she hiked into an area outside the campground, technically off-limits for camping, and threw down her bedroll. About one in the morning, she snuck down to the campground area to use the restroom and sneak in a shower. On her way back to her bedding, she tripped in the dark on a tent stake, falling into the tent it held up and slicing open her right leg at the shin. The camper in the tent cursed and threatened, which brought a couple sleeping in a camper shell nearby to the rescue. Jacob Johns and his wife Linda shone their flashlight, and its beams saw the wound in Sam's leg. Despite Sam's mild protests, they helped her over to the cab of their pickup and dressed her injury. In the most open and casual way, Linda and Jacob befriended Sam, and she found herself opening up to these warm and affable people. Sam was usually on guard and distrusting of everyone she met, but there was something about Linda and Jacob that disarmed her and made her feel at home and her muse squeezed her shoulders in confirmation. When the Johns learned that Sam was sleeping on a bedroll and that rain was in the air, they made room for her in the cab of their truck. It had a bench front seat that offered at least a little more comfort than the rock and pinecone-covered area she had picked out. Sam was invited to breakfast the next morning and spent the whole day with them as they hiked through Bryce Canyon National Park. Jacob often stopped to take pictures or do a sketch. Jacob was a painter known internationally for his scenic studies of the beauties of southern Utah and continually sought inspiration for his creations. Both Jacob and Linda would point out the color schemes in each vista, and they opened Sam's eyes to the power of the changing light as the day progressed. Sam had been in southern Utah for a few weeks but hadn't seen its beauty. Oh, she had looked at it, but she hadn't seen it until these two angels opened up her soul. She began to weep as she took in the splendor around her. Jacob was worried that Sam was upset, but with a touch from his wife soon grasped that they were tears of joy. He cried too as he observed the wealth of discovery in what seemed to be Sam's genesis. A lasting friendship was born and soon Sam was invited to come and work for Jacob and Linda as a scenic scout and secretary. 
They made a room for her in the bunkhouse of a ranch they had bought a decade before at the mouth of Zarahemla Canyon. The main house was built up against the canyon wall. Sam found herself overwhelmed by beauty and kindness every day. She and Linda became very close, and Sam felt as though she finally had a mother who cared for her. Linda had been unable to have children and felt that God had blessed her with this young, intelligent woman who was so ready to soak up life. The Johns were religious, but didn't try to force their beliefs on Sam. Sam had had no religious experience and didn't know what to think. One day, while sketching out the composition of a new painting, Jacob marveled aloud at the beautiful design of nature. He could not accept that there was no intelligent design behind it. It made absolutely no sense to him. His words hit home to Sam as she felt the chill in her spine. The Johns went to church over in Cedar City about once a month at St. Jude's Episcopal. Jacob always felt that he should attend often enough to be a part of the church's community, but on most Sundays his worship was more intimate as he communed with God's beautiful designs all around him. Sam began to accompany them on their monthly church visits, discovered beauty there as well, and soaked up the doctrines that dealt with kindness and empathy. Even though she had never received any training, Sam had a natural gift for composition and seeing the use of light in all art, whether it was in a painting or in a stage production. Jacob allowed her to join him in his studio as he worked, and he welcomed her comments. At first, she only praised his genius, but after a couple of years, she would offer critiques, still reassuring him of his brilliance, but offering a perspective he may not have thought of. Jacob relished her input and encouraged her gift to grow. Linda encouraged Sam to take some classes in arts administration over at SUU, which she did, but she didn't feel she needed to seek a degree. She was learning at the feet of two masters, and she didn't believe there was a better education available. By the time she was 22, Sam felt confident enough to represent Jacob in art show negotiations and auctions. She at first was only assisting Linda in these efforts, but soon Linda asked Sam to take over. Linda then broke the news that she needed time to focus on her battle with breast cancer. For the first time, Sam's newly developed faith was challenged. How could a loving and empathic God allow this pain to come to Linda? Linda's patience, acceptance, selflessness, laughter through pain, her ability to find joy and purpose in the most hopeless of moments, eventually allowed Sam to accept the sorrow mixed with gratitude that Linda taught her. Two years later, Linda sat in her favorite lawn chair, looking out at Inspiration Point in Bryce Canyon, holding the hands of Jacob on her right and Sam on her left. Then, with a sigh of gratitude and a tear of joy, slipped away to join the trailing clouds against the celeste sky. Three years later, Sam was still working for Jacob. He had taught her whom she was, 
but more importantly, whom she could become. She feared the world still. After a turbulent adolescence, these years with the Johns had made her feel safe. She knew that she shouldn't allow fear to guide her choices, and that eventually she would need to face the world and make her mark in it. She woke up well before the sun on a May morning and rode her bike the ninety-minute journey to Inspiration Point. As the sun's gleams began to gamble over the regal stone spires, Sam talked aloud to Linda, asking her advice. She explained the many options that she thought she had before her and wrestled with the pros and cons of each, when suddenly an unexpected and preposterous thought came into her mind. She laughed at it, even scoffed at it, but then she felt Linda squeezing her shoulders and kissing the top of her head. So she reconciled herself to it. She thanked her muse, and on most of the ride back she laughed and smiled at the wonder of it all. Jacob was in his studio, taking advantage of the morning light. When Sam walked in, and without even returning his good morning, grabbed both his arms and kissed him full on the lips. Oh, she had kissed him before, kisses of tenderness and affection, but this one was full of much more determination. Jacob was too astonished to do much at all. He didn't pull away or kiss back. He just observed and tried to figure it all out. Jacob Johns, Sam said, I'm supposed to take care of you. I want to take care of you. And, by the way, I love you. I want you to marry me. Jacob was stunned, flattered, delighted, so much so that he was glad that he had a paint palette in his hand to hide his physical reaction, and embarrassed. What had he done or said that led her to this? Had he ever acted inappropriately around her? He argued with her that he was almost forty years her senior and that she should go out in the world and live her life, find her love, have a family if she wanted. In fact, he insisted on it and told her she was fired. However, nothing worked. Sam was unwavering and indomitable. She kissed him again, and this time there was no mistaking the passion and intent. Jacob put down his paint palette and kissed her back. The next four years were the happiest of Sam's life. She was under no illusions that Jacob was happier with her than he had been with Linda, but she knew that he loved her and that she brought him joy. Two years ago, Jacob was hiking alone on the Peekaboo Loop Trail when he collapsed from a stroke. By the time rangers got him to the hospital in Panguitch, he was gone. Sam had the house now, and a generous bequest. Most of the paintings had gone to museums, except for two that Jacob had painted especially for her. Sam again wasn't sure what she was supposed to do, but thought that she should find a way to get to know the people living in Zarahemla. So, when a job as a UPS driver was advertised, she thought, why not? She also started going to church there. What better way to acquaint herself with the townspeople? 
There was no Episcopal church in Zarahemla, so she decided to try the Mormon church. It was a little strange not to have a priest giving the sermons each time. The members of the congregation were assigned to give talks, and some of them were just awful. Now and then, one would be heartfelt and inspiring, but she didn't understand this layman's approach. However, she was comforted by the focus on kindness and empathy. She knew enough to expect that the Mormons would try to convert her, so she always kept her conversations after church focused on niceties and observations about the community, but found an urgent excuse for leaving when the subject of meeting the missionaries came up. So here she was, a practical but indomitable romantic, 33 years old, a widow, an art expert, and a UPS driver. Huck Benyon was also an indomitable romantic, but not so practical. Huck's wife left him and the girls more than eight years ago. Huck ran the family ranch, and his life was almost wholly focused on caring for his girls, Emma, 11, and Rebecca, 9. He was scared. He felt like he knew how to handle little girls, but he didn't know what to do to guide and counsel women. Huck knew that Emma would start her physical change into womanhood soon, and he was at a loss. He could ask Mom for advice, but Mom was too feeble now to come and help. Huck's loneliness had not abated either. He needed, or at least wanted, a new wife. The problem was that he couldn't get himself to be practical about it. He was fixated on Merrill Hafen. She was at least five years his junior, far more educated and sophisticated than he, and rather out of his league when it came to beauty. But he couldn't let it go. He had made a fool of himself several times in his attempts to get her to take notice, but foolhardiness had become his dogma, and he was ready for more humiliation if that was the only way to win a chance with her. Cal Cinqua was showing up in Zarahemla about every other weekend now. He always had a logical excuse, visiting his foster dad, Zim, fixing things around the house for him, attending Rosa and Howard's wedding. But the real reason was to spend time with Merrill. Cal's dental practice in Flagstaff had grown, and he had become an integral and essential part of the health care system of his Hopi tribe. He couldn't just up and move to Utah to start a life with Merrill Hafen. He really should be looking for a woman from within his tribe. Besides, Merrill was committed to her own people and would be their mayor for at least three more years. But there was something about Merrill that Cal could not stay away from. So here he was again, spending the weekend in Zarahemla. He always knew where to find Merrill. She spent a couple of hours every morning at the Zarahemla diner, Merrill felt that it was still the best way to gauge the heartbeat of the town, since a large portion of the population patronized the diner at least now and then. Rosa would still act as her waitress, even though Rosa now owned the diner with her husband Howard. Rosa would spend part of her day placing food orders and doing inventory, but she liked interacting with people, so she continued her job as a waitress part-time. "'You're glowing again,' Merrill said to Rosa when she brought out the teapot. You are putting us all to shame, she teased. 
Rosa just blushed and smiled. Truth be told, Merrill was a little jealous. Rosa was obviously happier than she had been in the time Merrill knew her. Merrill's life was certainly filled with purpose and challenge, but she did long for a more devoted intimacy in her life. Could Cal be the answer? He was handsome, gentlemanly, kind, funny, masculine, and fabulously charming. They both knew that their relationship was not practical in the long run, but did love need to be practical? Maybe. And was this love? She didn't know. Their adult relationship was founded on the guilt they had each felt over the way they had treated each other as children. Could the guilt be distorting their feelings for each other now? Huck Banyan also knew where to find Merrill. The girls were playing at their cousin's house today, so before he continued his chores at the ranch, Huck thought he would try hanging out at the diner and maybe find an excuse to interact with Mayor Hafen. He walked in, determined to look confident and secure, but when he saw Cal Cinqua sitting with her and wiping away a bit of oatmeal from the corner of her mouth, his heart sank. Huck wanted to just turn and run out the door, but his pride and his damned optimism caused him to take a stool at the counter and ask for the French toast special. Why did he always do this to himself? He would now have to sit here in agony while he waited for his order and then eat it. And of course, he couldn't eat it quickly, not if he was to keep up his facade of confidence and security. Merrill was suddenly by his side, saying, Mr. Benyon, so nice to see you. How are things on your ranch, and how are those beautiful girls? She remembered who he was, at least, and remembered his girls. That's a start. I'm fine. Thank you, Mayor. Um, Mayor. My girls have started school again, and they are wonderful and beautiful. Thank you for asking. When he spoke of his girls, tears inexplicably came to his eyes, so he turned back to face the counter. Give them my best, will you? She added. I'll bet they are growing like weeds. Merrill returned to her table and to Cal Cinqua. Huck realized that she was just being a politician, but he was glad anyway that she had talked to him. Sam was at the Howard's wedding two months ago, where she saw Cal Cinqua, Merrill Hafen, and Huck Benyon sitting awkwardly in a row, when she had one of her impulses, urges, inspirations, epiphanies from her muse. She didn't understand it, but she was ready to jump into action whenever her muse called. This morning, as she drove by the diner, she saw the same group looking just as awkward and knew that this was the moment. Huck noticed a UPS truck pulling up in front of the diner, and the new UPS driver, Sam Johns, who brought in a package. Packages for the mayor were addressed and normally delivered to the city offices three blocks away, but sometimes, if it is a small package, Sam knows to find the mayor at the diner in the mornings. The mayor greeted her as she walked to the table and thanked her for going out of her way. Always chivalrous, Cal Cinqua stood as she approached. 
After handing the mare her package, Sam, quite suddenly, took Cal's arms and kissed him long and fully on the lips. She then, while everyone in the diner stood or sat in shock, perfunctorily walked back to her truck and drove away. Cal began to get hot in the face. He didn't even know the woman who had just kissed him. He didn't want to show any emotion, but he was highly embarrassed and was certain that what just happened would be misunderstood. He mumbled, Excuse me, to Merrill and walked out the door and down the sidewalk. Merrill thought about running after him, but she knew that Cal needed some time to take firm control of his emotions before he allowed anyone to observe him again. So she would give him that time. Sam drove away in a mischievous whimsy, uncertain what the consequences would be, but fairly certain that what she did would shake up some relationships that needed shaking up. Was this to be her life? Interfering in the lives of mere acquaintances and strangers at the behest of her muse? Maybe it was time for Sam to find a real career. Maybe she should move to a metropolitan area where she could have more opportunity to use her skills as an arts administrator. Or maybe she could open a practice here and encourage artists and galleries to seek her out. She would think it over. In the meantime, she was loving life, and even learning to love people. Huck was confused, and, he thought, elated. He wasn't sure. He didn't quite understand what just happened. But in his confusion, he found himself asking Rosa if she would bring his plate, when it was ready, over to the mayor's table, where he was already pulling out a chair to join her. And that's the news from Zarahemla, where love and laughter are served at every meal, where safe sex means slipping on a wedding ring, and where everyone is a best friend. <laughs>